0: Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajiwara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Rana Faruhar is with me today. She is the widely read global business columnist for the Financial Times, where she's also associate editor. In addition, Rana is the global economics analyst on CNN Prior to joining the FT in 2017, Rana spent 13 years at Newsweek as an economics and foreign affairs editor and foreign correspondent. And before that, she spent six years at Time Magazine as assistant managing editor and economic columnist. Rana is also the author of three books. Her most recent is Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, published in 2022 by Crown. And Rana joins me today thanks to the efforts of my colleague, Lee Gallagher. So, Rana welcome and and thank you very very much for for joining us today. Um
1: yeah, thanks for having me. I'm delighted.
0: Of course. And and so I wanted to to start, you know, it's been I guess it's been about a year and a half since uh since Homecoming was was published. Mm. Um and I dare say that the the data points since then have uh probably only seemed to to confirm <laughs> your your thesis and, and your themes. But I want to talk a little bit about where we are and how we got here in the in the in the bigger sort of story of globalization, which I think has sort of dominated the operating environment that most companies um, have experienced over the last, you know, 40, 50, 70 years, really, right? Um, and it's fitting, of course, because Davos and the World Economic Forum, the sort of marquee event of globalization, uh, was just last week. Um, but as you wrote, in the early part of your book, you say, you know, it's not just feelings, but metrics that tell us that by some measures, globalization has failed. Um, and this, despite all of the positive externalities of growth and lifting people out of poverty and how that's empowered women and and brought global health and, and, and so on and so forth, um, and created this emollient environment that allowed the multinational corporation to become the single most important economic actor in the world. Mm. Talk a little bit about where you see us now, and we'll get into where we're going. But it seems it feels like inflection
1: yep. point. Uh, for sure, inflection point. As a matter of fact, I would argue, and I do argue in the book that it's it's really a once in a generational, maybe once in a lifetime um, inflection point. You know, um, and that's that's normal, by the way. I mean, if we step way back and look at how the political economy changes, at how globalization changes globalization's been with us for thousands of years really since humans started migrating um in in the last few hundred years there have been pivot points where you know the pendulum will swing really far in the direction of globalization and then something will happen that makes that paradigm a bit too extreme and then it'll start to swing back and you know, you could point to, say, uh, 18th century mercantilism, which sort of worked until it didn't, and then you get the pendulum swinging into laissez-faire, and then you get the, the Great Depression, and, you know, Keynesianism comes in, and governments have more of a say uh, in the economy, and then there's a period of deglobalization until uh, really the late 70s and the advent of the Reagan-Thatcher era, at which point, I would argue, the this latest round of, of globalization really takes off. And- In terms of why I would say that it has failed, well, you have to look at the data and say, yes, this latest 50 years or so of modern globalization created more wealth at a global scale than ever before and for sure lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But it also created tremendous inequality and in particular in-country inequality. In almost every country, you saw that really, really, Growing And in particular, in places like the US, China, um, many, many European countries, just this pulling apart of the top tier and bottom tier of society, which then of course led to um, more financial fragility, more economic stagnation. That's something I get into actually in my first book, Makers and Takers. Um, and most importantly, and perhaps most apropos for this moment, you get a lot of political polarization, you get a, a voting public on the ground in countries that essentially looks at the policymakers, many of whom are from the global elite. Um, they, they They are Davos man, right, in many countries. They are people like me, like you, that feel equally comfortable if we're in Istanbul or London or New York. And they say, well, wait a minute, is the global market system really operating in my interests or has it become the tail that wags the dog? And that pulling apart, that disconnection has, I would argue, been a really, really crucial factor in leading to the more um, populist politics, both on the right and the left, that we see in places like the US, but also many parts of Europe, and the nas- some of the nationalism that we see in the develop- developing world as well. That is really bad for business. I mean, not only is it bad for society at large, talk about an unstable environment for business. So that's, in a nutshell, why I would say globalization has failed. And so clearly,
0: you know, everything you've just talked about is proving extremely salient in this political season and it has for the last several uh mm-hmm. several cycles, as you um, as you say. And, you know, even even some of the more populist real, uh, candidates, um, you know, I'm thinking of actually Ron DeSantis, who just dropped out over, over the weekend, but they will yeah. they will sort of straight arm their their Ivy League bona fides as much as possible as an example <laughs> right now to feed into that to feed into that sense that you're talking about. But I do wonder, I mean, is it some? Is there something inherent about globalization? And, and I understand what you were saying about the entire history of globalization. So let's talk about this most recent iteration, the post-Reagan, post-Thatcher era of globalization. Or is it that governments have failed, particularly the United States government, has failed to take into account or to employ mitigating uh, strategies for all of that creative destruction that is inherent in a vibrant capitalist system. So in other words, when yeah. you look at sort of the happiest meters that some of the uh, some organizations Gallup and others put out, you know, countries like Finland and Denmark, the Netherlands, Switzerland where, you know, you have overall pretty high levels of, of public happiness, yeah. countries really benefited from globalization also, but they've taken steps to protect those who are going to be disenfranchised in in, sure. in that environment.
1: Sure, it, listen, it's a great point, it's a great question, and it's very appropriate to compare the Europe uh, experience and the diverse Europe experience with the US. I always like to be a little careful about using the Scandinavian countries as a model for much of anything, because they're small, they're blonde, they're homogenous. Early (laughs) in my a a mentor, Michael Elliott, who probably some of your listeners will remember, he's sadly passed away, um, used to run Newsweek International, once told me, you know, you never use Sweden as the model for what the U.S. can be, because, you know, frankly, that's just not an option in a a society this big and and heterogeneous. Um, That said... I will I will say two things. Yes, parts of Europe did a better job with girding the social safety net and also really thinking not just about trade adjustment assistance, not just about support for labor, but valuing labor. I mean, this is a this is perhaps not the best moment in the world to be touting some of the German um, economic model because Germany's having a difficult period right now. But one thing I would say is um, having been a correspondent for 10 years in Europe, it was really striking to me coming back to the U.S. just in time of the financial crisis to see how the hire and fire mode in this country, the sense of labor as a cost on the balance sheet, you move it off as quickly as you can, which, of course, we now know comes with tremendous risks in terms of supply chains, um, uh, outsourcing of the industrial commons, the innovation um, problems that come from that. But there's just a sense that labor is something you want to get rid of. You know, talent is not, despite all the talk, is really not necessarily something to be cultiv- uh, cultivated. And to your point, our government system hasn't really incentivized CEOs to do much uh, differently. You know, If you look at the way you can depreciate machinery, as opposed to the way you could um, potentially treat labor, uh, it's totally different. I mean, why should you be able to? depreciate a piece of machinery and not be able to invest in human capital. But I think there's also another really big point here and this point travels across the Atlantic and I would say it's the same no matter where you go and that's that we were all a little bit too trusting in the sort of conventional Chicago school economic models. And I'll share a story actually this is you know this is in fact the story that led me to write this book. I was trying to understand, you know, seeing, looking ahead and seeing, gosh, trade issues are going to be a big deal. Populism is going to be a big deal. I went down um, a few years ago to see Richard Trumpka, who has uh, also passed on. He was the former president of the AFL-CIO. And I asked him, you know, what were the conversations that you were having with, uh, at that point, Clinton policymakers, you know, with Crafting of NAFTA, entry of China into the WTO in 2001. And he told me a fascinating story. He said a a policymaker had come to him back in the day from the Clinton administration and said, um, you know, look, we know that some of these shifts in the global trading system are going to hurt U.S. labor um, and rich country labor in general. But don't worry, you're going to get a lot of cheap stuff and in the meantime and then there's going to be a sort of a leveling out leveling up of wages globally and trumpka said well okay i can see that but how long is that leveling up going to take and the policymaker said 3 to 5 generations <laughs> and that says two things one that economics has a tremendous amount of hubris and <laughs> it needs to be reformed in many ways which i think is happening um but it also says that wow you know we're trying to model things that are incredibly complex and human i mean as we all know there are economic models and then there's business in the real world and there's politics in the real world these are complicated things and you simply cannot account for them in these sort of algorithmic um you know physics wannabe type models
0: yeah so you know and that that kind of brings us to you know something else you you wrote in the book um you know here we are and that kind of like the most most important variable of, of or one of the most important variables let's put it that way of economic sci- cycles relates to and i'll quote you here a fundamental sense of economic well-being and that is far less a matter of short-term data than of an underlying political philosophy and so here we have this kind of extraordinary moment of you know um of a shift toward populism nationalism isolationism and it's a it's a political phenomenon um related to economics that you've just been talking about that is not entirely i mean it's it's not in completely analogous to what we've seen in the 1930s or at other times but it rhymes a bit sure And so i'm wondering you know what your concerns are on on that front because typically at least in the united states when we have gone from a situation like that the other side gotten back on kind of the globalization track again you know we've had to have some proxisms of some pretty big violence in this country either Mm. external wars or internal strife 1968 civil war you know all all of these types of things so how do you we're going to get to how the companies and corporations and corporate actors are going to have to navigate all of this but just in terms of the political environment that's unfolding, not just here, but, you know, in, in the sure. other Western democracies as well.
1: Um, very, very important historical references you're making. It, it's interesting. You could actually, um, to your point, and I've looked at this data, you can layer on a chart that would look at, say, 1914 um, to really the World War II period. And you could create the same chart um, starting sometime a few years before the great financial crisis and layer it on to today. And you might see a lot of similarities, both in terms of uh, market responses, um, but potentially in terms of the political economy. And that's the big question. I mean, do you have to have, uh, does a Cold War, does a trade war inevitably turn into a hot conflict? And there are plenty of people that would argue yes. and I, I think it is tough to look back through history and find one of these political economy pendulum shifts that didn't come with some bumps. I mean, we're we're already in the middle of two hot wars right now, you know, so it's not like that's not already happening. Do the U.S. and China need to go to war? And, and are we going to end up in World War III? I'm not so convinced of that. In fact, um, I think there's still a potential, actually, for us to end up in a Better placed, albeit with some bumps. I don't want to be Panglossian. And I'll tell you why, because we are in the middle of what could potentially be one of the great productive bubbles in economic history. And what do I mean by productive bubble? Well, if you look at some of these periods of time that we're talking about, um, there was political transformation, but there was also big economic transformation taking place. You know, the Industrial Revolution, um, you you mentioned the 60s, that was actually the advent of the commercial internet in many ways. It's when, you know, the the ARPANET was getting started, Defense Department was investing um, in these technologies which the commercial sector eventually privatized. History shows us that when you can have a big transformative technology that is underwritten by the public sector and then commercialized by the private sector, you get shared middle-class growth you do get real on the ground economic growth not the kind of financialized growth that we all know and feel and frankly you know happily see in our portfolios although not so i'm not so happy about the ramifications um longer term which we can talk about um but you get that other kind of growth and i think that clean technology Um, uh, you know, somewhat enhanced by AI, possibly, um, could be those, you know, those technologies of the future. And I think that there is still a tremendous opportunity, and and it's possibly a bipartisan opportunity. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be totally negative on the possibility of Trump, too. We can talk about what that means economically. But um, I think there is still a chance that The planet could come together and really invest in these technologies in a way that could create that productive bubble, which is what people need to feel ultimately to get reinvested in liberal democracy. Because if you're an average person in Indiana, where I grew up, and you're looking out at what's going on in the world, you don't see a lot that relates to you. And you need to feel that, that felt experience of, hey, I'm part of a society. I have a, a voice. There are policies that are actually serving me on Main Street that are bolstering my income, not just the price of stocks and homes that are mostly owned by rich people. Um, so so that's that's my answer to your question.
0: But you know, do you think that so you and I sitting here in New York might see um when you talk about <laughs> AI and the energy transformation and, and all of that see nothing but opportunity, uh, potentially. And the I wouldn't opportunity- say that actually,
1: but yes, you might.
0: Well, there's a lot of potential upside. There's going to create, there's going to be the yeah. creation of some real winners and losers, but going back to the voting base that is attracted currently to these populist ideas and notions, you know, They see creative destruction that, you know, if if they work in the hydrocarbons industry as an example, or, you know, or they see their job being taken over by a a bot, um, you know, maybe not how many generations.
1: Let me me jump into that because I, I, I think that's a super interesting question. Yeah, that's sort of the truism. But I would argue that neither business nor policymakers have actually made the case to labor about, hey, I'm a coal worker making, you know, let's say if I'm unionized, 50 bucks, 60 bucks an hour why do i want to shift to work for a wind turbine company um, or you know a solar cell maker by the way many of these companies are european and i think one of the great hypocrisies and european companies should like get a light bulb about this is treating the us like their own personal china coming to right to work states and trying to sell people on 15 an hour jobs at wind turbine factories not a good political look and frankly not an economic sell now I think there is a path forward and I actually believe labor is getting a lot smarter about not just managing decline, but thinking about the future. Let me jump to a a different topic, which is the Hollywood uh, writer strikes, which may seem uh, sort of tangential to what we're talking about. It's actually quite tightly linked. We are going through transformational shifts, be it a shift from um, fossil fuels to clean energy, be it uh, you know a shift towards an incredibly digital economy in which transformative technologies like AI are going to play a bigger role. What was interesting in the writer strikes, the Hollywood writer's strikes, those weren't just about benefits and pay. They were about who's going to get to control the technology, who's going to control the evolution of it, who's going to say how it works. And so... Labor's in this game; they're winning this fight. Other industries are looking, and other workers are looking and saying, "Oh my gosh, you know, our lunch is going to be eaten if we don't have a bigger say in this." And by the way, if we go back and just to you know, this this populist backlash against globalization was basically because the manufacturing workforce got disrupted. That's eight percent of the whole workforce. Forty percent of the workforce is about to be disrupted by AI. So, I think it behooves all of us to think about how we can make that transition a win-win.
0: So, do you think part of the problem here is and maybe it is that our elected officials have no greater clue on how this is all going to play out than anybody else. But I would say that during this period of <laughs> incredible angst and concern and as well as the sort of the bigger picture that you were talking about at the very beginning, this kind of breakdown of the traditional societal compact that we had had, that you were going to do better than your parents did and your children will do better than you, that that sort of has broken down and people don't believe that anymore. But I also feel like our elected officials have not been doing a good sales job, even when their policies oftentimes might be good ones or the right ones on a totally unrelated issue. I don't believe that President Biden has done a good job of selling the American people on why Ukraine... Ukraine not losing, Ukraine winning is important. Why the support of Israel is well, okay. in, in his let's, case, right? And on, same let's thing go on through on the that. Plane. Yeah,
1: let's go through sure. that just for a minute because you know I think about this all the time as somebody that has to go on CNN and try and make the. I actually believe Bidenomics is very smart. I think this administration has been vectorally um, quite quite right in many of the decisions it's taken but messaging those in 3 minutes. Boy, let okay, so let's give it a shot here. Let let here here's what I would say. Why should we continue to fund Ukraine? Well, maybe because we're about to go through the biggest economic pivot point in your lifetime. Um, we're decoupling from China and guess what? US demand alone isn't going to support the reindustrialization that we need. We need Europe too. Therefore, we have to make Europe feel secure. Is or have I lost the average voter already? Absolutely. Probably probably um so i i mean i i think and and talk to a lot of policymakers about this agreed we need better communications but but i want to just i want to say and honestly i want to give a shout out on this program I, i think i would bet more ceos than not would agree with me can we just give a shout out to the people that are working 18 hours a day in this white house and, you know, in, not in all halls of Congress, but, you know, there there are a lot of people that could be making 10 times as much money that are working all the hours God created to try and do the right thing. And I just don't want to be slamming those people. I, I just I think that they get a major short shrift. And so these folks have spent the last few years building a policy framework that I think is, is quite correct. And it is summarized in Jake Sullivan's speech from last April, in which he said, Growth is no longer enough. You need growth that's sustainable and inclusive. And then he laid it out. We're talking about a post colonial trade paradigm in which it's not about big countries or states or companies going in and extracting value. It's about a shared, um, uh, you know, sharing of the supply chain. That's all hard. And they did it quickly. And yes, now we have to message it. But it is hard to message. There's just no question because complexity is hard to message. And that gets into the, the the issue. I'll just say one more thing that gets into the issue of how hard it is to be a liberal democracy at a moment of change like this.
0: And that is not the um, that's not the natural order um, of, of things. It's very fragile and it has to be worked on. But, you know, again, it, it is highly, highly dependent on us essentially agreeing to a a shared sense of not only establishment values um but also that we are basing our policy decisions on an accepted um you know corpus of uh, of data and truth in a in a sense and that's where we've kind of lost our lost our way here um uh, a little bit but i want to i want to come back to politics in a minute but i want to reset the stage here just a little bit because we alluded to this quite a bit so far in the conversation but You've talked a bit about how, where we are, how we got here, but as you look Mm. at all of these variables out there, the role of China, have we already hit peak China? What role does the United States want to play going forward in perpetuating the system that it built and designed and benefited from coming out of World War II? Um, The climate change, energy transition um, period, and this extraordinary period of, um, of, of, of technological disruption in terms of the change in how institutions of state are relating to their populations and power is distributed and so on. How all, so what is the, how would you define the world that we seem to be? I know you don't have an yeah. absolute crystal ball, but you've got as good a one as just about anybody else I read. So <laughs> where do you think we're, we're heading?
1: yeah, so let me um that that's a lot, but let me let me take that in kind of three or four pieces. Let's start with China. Are we at peak China? Um, I would frame the question somewhat differently. we are We are certainly at peak hyperglobalization and um, dysfunction between the u s. and China in terms of being embedded in this economic relationship that had become too extreme for for either party, you know, the u s. as consumer, China as factory of the world not working anymore um if you go back to 2015 actually and you look at china's made in 2025 plan which came out then it was a very clear roadmap. i mean that's the wonderful thing about the chinese is despite the the black box of sort of quarterly data when they put out a five-year plan they rarely veer from it vectorally. so what did this plan say it said we want to be the regional power. We want to develop our own supply chains regionally, which makes sense for us at a moment when we're pivoting away from just being producers. We want to have a more balanced consumption production model. Uh, we want to be independent from Western technology. Um, you know, we see the world as being somewhat decoupled and regionalized, not just hypernationalized, but regionalized that all makes perfect sense to me you know i mean i frankly i've in the 25 years i've been going to china it's always amazed me that any ceo could kind of land and think wow this country's going to come seamlessly into the washington consensus and do exactly what the us wants it to do it's like no <laughs> you know? so um I think where we're headed is towards more regionalization. Now, what that looks like, how that plays out, how bumpy that is, we're we're going to see that in real time this year, next year. I expect there's going to be more trade frictions around a, a variety of issues as countries and companies and consumers kind of figure out what all of this means. Um in terms of the um, electric vehicle and 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 clean energy transition, I think similarly we're kind of figuring out are we going to be in a bipolar world here or are we going to be in a tripolar world is europe going to present some sort of a a third front um or is it going to get pulled into one orbit or another um you know that's what these sort of clean steel and clean supply chain conversations between the us and the eu are all about um tell me i'm sorry i'm losing there was so much in your question i'm losing the thread of the the third or fourth
0: and and topic. frankly just the role of the united states wants yeah. to play um, yeah. in, in so that, establishing and holding these these guardrails.
1: Yes, yeah, so that, I can say, I think is going to depend pretty fundamentally on who's in the White House in 2024. And I'll just talk for a moment about the Biden administration. I do think that um, the NSC and the USTR have done a pretty good job sketching out, look, we do want to have a rules-based order. We do want to have the u s., um, you know, not decoupling from the world, not withdrawing from the world, but presiding and guiding a new order in which it's not just about GDP growth and capital sort of running way ahead of goods and people. It's about a much more organic model of, how can we build um, a new economy, a new trade system, a kind of a new Bretton Woods, really, that's about values and not just growth? Because that was one of the things that happened in the last 50 years of globalization. Um, we thought that capital goods and people were all going to travel at the same rate. In fact, capital traveled much further and faster, which is why, you, as you pointed out in the very beginning of this program, global companies became the single most important economic actors. So, um, you know, that needs to be rebalanced for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and I think that's where the Biden administration is now, of course, the rubber meets the road on, well, what does that look like? If you're trying to, um, you know, negotiate steel policy or agricultural policy or shared standards for technology and digital trade in Asia. So that's where we are now, if we get Trump too. um, I don't think interestingly, I also don't think it's going to mean u s. disengagement from the world, But I expect that the engagement will be much more um offensive, uh, m- sort of tough talk, military uh, intervention, possibly. If you look at, you know, what happened the last time around, that's that's what you got. You got trade wars. You got more u s. military intervention. Um, You know, the Trump administration, a lot of uh, their economic advisors are talking about a 10 percent across the board tariff on on goods and services even. Um, You know, I think that's very possible. And so very, very different stance. And I think America first just kind of a fundamental. We want to be more insulated, at least economically. I think you would see a lot more effort to, say, have energy independence, even more than the Biden administration um, you'd see more protectionism in certain strategic areas.
0: Do you think that, I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, sort of headlines that was coming out of Davos this year was the sort of universal belief, uh, there, uh, if I'm not putting too many words in their mouth, that, uh, Trump was likely to prevail. Um, uh, and, and they were preparing for that, but do you think there is this sort of like, is it going to be less a is Trump 2.0 less a fair Trump or is it America first Trump? And yeah. they benefit from a lot of the less a fair elements of Trump despite the rhetoric. Yeah. um, and you would see this kind of regulatory rollback um and 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 et cetera. Yeah. But I do wonder if if it's the other um that 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 is going to come into office uh, or would come into office that, you know, it's like you say, the contours of the role that America plays in the world is going to be very dependent on which one of these guys shows up.
1: <laughs> right. And the very fact that, we're, I mean, I, I find it fascinating as always that we're essentially talking about one man's psychology here. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about Trump and how he has changed politics. We're really playing a guessing game of, of which personality are you going to get today? That's that's amazing. And it it shows you why economic models are kind of out and political risk analysis is in <laughs> because it's all about the soft factors right now. I, I have to say, let, let's just take those uh, scenarios for a moment. All right, let's say, and you could argue this, um, smart people that I know do, you get a, a landslide Trump victory, perhaps, and then you get a Trump that is confident. He feels comfortable. And if you look at just look at the Iowa primary. You know, I was watching um, quite closely and live blogging during the Iowa primary, and I was quite struck. There were a couple of Democratic pundits who were saying, oh, now we're gonna get this arrogant, selfish speech from Trump. We didn't get that at all. We got a, I'm thanking my friends, I'm thanking my family, I'm thanking Barron's grandmother. You know, And why? Because he had just had a landslide victory. So you could argue you'll get that Trump. But then I would say, let's then go to the economic fundamentals. The last time around, we had tax cuts. A lot of the money was brought back because of the one-time exemption. A lot of it went into share buybacks, propped up the asset markets. I would be surprised if anybody thinks we could see that kind of sugar high again in this monetary environment as far on from that moment as we are. So I just don't think you're going to get that kind of prop up in stock prices. At the same time, you could, by 2025, start to see, frankly, some of the paying of the piper for this very unexpectedly robust run that we've had, particularly in the US. I mean, we know, okay, some of this is the consumer, you know, some of this is, is fundamental robustness in the US economy, but some of it is fiscal stimulus that uh, and monetary ease that propped up things during the pandemic, just as we propped up things during the great financial crisis. We have now had nearly two decades of really unconventional monetary policy. If yeah. it looks like a bubble and smells like a bubble, you know, you, you could really see things start to turn. Trump himself is now saying, I don't want to be Herbert Hoover.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So as you, you know, as you talk to corporate executives, yeah. I mean, what do you how how do you see them trying to either, you know, hedge for this range of outcomes? Yep. um uh, or thread the needle i mean like you know it, 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 and at the same time knowing that our competitors china most particularly but frankly all, all of southeast asia europe increasingly the middle east as um as well india now you know in, in, this and this this some overarching theme that has that has also emerged post pandemic plus with the america first agenda in a sense which is kind of efficiency versus resilience yeah. Yeah. um you know what are they doing, or what are you hearing? Um, yeah. or are so, your so,
1: <laughs> no, no, not at all, not at all um i I think you you nailed it with a move from efficiency to resiliency, right, and that's something we began to see really almost immediately as soon as the pandemic hit um because all these vulnerabilities that we knew were hidden on the balance sheet suddenly come out um and you know, and they're very much part of the felt experience of. Consumers of the voting public, you know, when when two thousand and eight happened, that was esoteric financial instruments. Yes, it had a you know impact on the housing market and the real world, but this is going to the grocery store and not being able to find stuff you want. This is not being able to get PPE. So that I believe is a fundamental shift. And so I see companies really now in in the C suite, in the CFO's office, start to tally what is the cost of resiliency and when when, and where and in what areas does it make sense to pay that cost? It's now simply seen as a cost of doing business and you have to calculate it as part of the whole ROI um, decision-making process. And uh, so I think that's very real. It's not going away. I also see a lot more localization, um, although I don't necessarily see less concentration yet, which is interesting. Um, just to flesh that out a bit more, we know supply chains are changing. But in many cases, cases what seems to be localization and regionalization is actually just China's putting parts now through Mexico to come into the US. It's It's this right. sort of complexity. And the BIS did a very interesting study um, a couple months ago, just had some fascinating three-dimensional maps, just looking at the complexity in supply chains now. I think that um, tech is going to play a big part of the C-suite's efforts to try and manage that. Sensor technology, AI, supply chain tracking software. I mean, boy, if there was ever a boom industry, it's kind of a stealth boom industry. You know, people think The tech story is over. The tech story is not over. It's just changed. It's not consumer anymore. It's all things industrial. Um, So I see just as last time around, you had a recovery and recessionary cycle. You saw companies really pouring money into tech investment. Same again.
0: I want to digress for just a moment away from the big global operating um, picture Um, because we're talking about companies and company managements and talk a little bit about the domestic political environment that they find themselves in and in, you know in recent years companies have caught themselves in in hot water uh by some of the social positions they have taken but also at the same time many stakeholders are are demanding that they 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 take positions and the like and and just for the benefit of the audience today we're we're taping this conversation on Monday January 22nd and Rana's column in today's financial times is about um the about diversity and inclusion, um equity and inclusion policies at companies, and how those are evolving rhetorically versus what they're doing on the ground and how they're measuring that. And so, can you talk a little bit about how this domestic political environment, corporate wokism, all of the whatever buzzword you want to use, you <laughs> yep. see kind of playing out a a just sort of organically but also with an eye toward what the White House might look like in twenty twenty five
1: Good question. All right. So let me talk about organically. Um, So, you know, uh, over the last few years, we had big shifts in, um, in the culture. You had Black Lives Matter. You had the real, I think, appropriate outpouring of outrage after the murder of George Floyd. And you know, companies were part of that, and companies, as we know, um, have for a long time been pushed many times by younger consumers to really kind of step into this fray and to be more involved in politics. Tricky, tricky business for them. And I'm, you know, uh, I've always advocated that they go carefully and cautiously and think about where are their sweet spots. You know, don't try and address everything, but. You know, in the age of social media, companies are really being pushed on just about everything. I mean, it is a tough spot to be in. So so post-George Floyd, a lot more money, a lot more money, hundreds of millions of dollars go go into DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion programs. Um, Some of that money was well spent. But frankly, I look around and I see a lot of it um, being part of a kind of a performative effort to say, yeah, we're everywhere. We're having a cocktail for this, a happy hour for that, a party for that. But, you know, what are the metrics? um what are what are you really doing? What does it all mean, particularly in the context of the business model of the individual company? And so now, with uh, the decision by the Supreme Court to roll back affirmative action, um which l- changes the whole legal framework for diversity and what can and can't be done, you're now seeing companies under fire, the way universities have been under fire to really, First of all, justify if they are uh, living by the letter of the law. So quotas out. They are I mean, they were never popular. They're now legally dubious. Um, you're seeing a lot more demand uh, from boards for really hard numbers about what are we doing? What's the payoff? And that's also, I think, quite normal at a, a time. You know We may get a soft landing. We may still have a great year in the markets, but we all kind of know we're at a pivot point and people are circling the wagons a little bit, thinking about their balance sheets thinking about what's to come that's a time to kind of focus on fundamentals and a lot of softer things at the edges go away now i i don't want to be mistaken by saying by by anybody thinking uh that i'm saying diversity doesn't matter we all know it matters hugely there's a long-term body of research at this point showing if you have diversity particularly at the executive level board level you just do better you you know and that makes sense it's a it's an increasingly diverse world But I think now we're starting to ask, well, what kind of diversity do we need? Is it, you know, it can't just be about gender and race. It also has to include age, it has to include geography, it has to um, include cognitive diversity. And so it's in a way, it's possibly a real golden moment, I think, for companies to go deeper, have some real soul searching, reflect on what they've done that's working and can really be quantified, but also look at what's more performative which i think if if you don't move away from that there's the risk that cynicism can can leak in and and people think what you're doing is inauthentic
0: so one last question on the corporate front because you know we obviously see a big you know there's a diversity in capability running companies even in the best of times but yeah. everything we've been talking about over the course of this conversation i mean corporate executives and boards and everybody else are trying to build the proverbial plane while they are flying it right now <laughs> right. right and and you know you talked at the very beginning of the conversation about this sort of overindexation that we've had on the chicago school kind of milton friedman
1: yeah. um
0: uh rationale for the for the social rationale for the company uh essentially and that that's evolving in in a sense but it also seems to me you talked about globalization you know writ large, it is this free flow of capital, of labor, of opening of markets, and, and 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 so on. And that actually wasn't quite as free at the same speed in all of those, all of those variables. But at the same time, if the world was your supply chain and your market, you know, your total addressable market, which is one of the key buzzwords of the, of recent years, right, has been enormous. Is that actually going to get small? I mean, I guess my my real question is is the corporation going to have to evolve i mean will we think of yeah. it in a different way the way we are about the global operating environment it seems like impossible for that to remain static while everything else is dynamic
1: i a hundred percent think so i mean i have been thinking for for years that there were going to be some pretty profound shifts not only in geographically how companies can can operate and kind of what the trade rules are and and what the digital rules are um i mean they're you know they're different in every country now almost it's it's incredible um but the actual structure of the corporation to deal with where wealth is held today so let me let me um dig down on that for a minute if you look at where wealth is about 80 percent of it is in ip data software human capital Okay, we're now at a really transformational moment of how that can be seen, how it can be divided. I mean, you're seeing I mentioned the Hollywood strikes before, but, you know, there's now technology, algorithmic technology that can go into people's large language models and see, well, where are you getting content from? I mean, and now there's a spate of uh, copyright lawsuits coming out of that. You're also, I think, at a moment, particularly post-pandemic, where work itself has changed how people work um, the 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 stake that they expect um, both in terms of time and value from their employer Um, media is always a little bit on the sharp end of the the spear here and one of the things i've noticed in my own industry which i think is going to come to many others is there's there's been a bit of a superstar effect where, you know, if you're a big brand, a name, a columnist, you might work for many, many different places. I work at the FT. I'm also an analyst for CNN. I write books. I give speeches. Um, You know, that paradigm in a world built on IP is going to become more and more decentralized, more and more robust. On the one hand, that's great because there's potentially more wealth sharing. On the other hand, for old line companies that are built on trying to ring fence talent and get everybody into an office in Midtown, good luck.
0: Right, right. So, you know, one of the things that has um, been clear since the pandemic, really, right, is that governments came back in a very, very big uh, very big way. Um, and that has now only been, you know, exacerbated by the IRA, the infrastructure bill, um, you know, and 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 so and the Chips uh, Chips and Science Act and the and and the like. Um, so talk about the where you think the evolving role of the state and particularly the American state, um, is, is going to be, and what's the appropriate um appropriate yeah. role? We've seen this historically on you know everything from the space program in, the, <laughs> uh, in you know in 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 the sixties to this. The symbiotic relationship between DARPA and IARPA, and you know some of the technolo- technologies that we have today, the internet, um, you know GPS, and all of these things that we sort of take for granted. Um, but but um, as we go through this gigantic competition with a state-run system like in China, uh, at a moment of profound um, uh, technological uh, change <clears throat> and economic change, how do we balance this? Yeah.
1: Yeah, boy, it's it, this is this kind of 64 million, billion, trillion, whatever the right metric is question here. Um, uh, Two things to say there. Again, I'll go back to this idea of the productive bubble. You know, when did you have these roll out of the railroads? You know, the government uh, guarantees the race to the West, figures out which gauge we should be using, um, allows land grant universities to come in and kind of, you know, create a pathway. Um that's government putting a floor under a market that the private sector then um, commercializes, which is appropriate. I would argue the same thing with DARPA. You have fundamental technologies, the government underwrites how they're going to, what they're going to look like, puts basic research money into it, and then boom! By you know the mid '90s, you've got the commercial internet. Um, I think that is where we need to be right now, and I think that's ultimately where the Biden administration is trying to take things. If you look. For example, at uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, that was not happily received by Europeans in particular at first, Um, they could have done a better job of communicating about it, but I would argue that there's a potentially really good framework there. Um, We're saying, okay, we need shared standards for environment and labor under the clean transition so that we don't leave workers behind or so that we don't simply outsource our environmental issues to, to poorer countries. Um, that's the framework. Now, how do we get there? Um, it's about standard setting. It's about partnerships. It's about you know creating some really hard new rules that make sure. And to go back to the beginning of the conversation, you said, "Have governments done well enough underpinning society in transitional moments?" In the past, in the in the the the, um, the early '90s and and early 2000s, no, they didn't. Um, this time around, we have to do that better. Now, the question, of course, is always then, well, does China have an advantage? State-run economy, you know, they've got a top-down system. On the one hand, yes. I mean, I remember actually once I was in China and some edict had come down about um, no more plastic bags, which, you know, we have that in New York. Everyone still uses plastic bags. I'm telling you, within 48 hours, you couldn't find a plastic bag on the street in Beijing. So, yes, there's that command and control advantage, but- if i look at where the real gain and growth is going to be technology driven growth it's we've we've left the consumer internet and we're moving into the industrial internet that's going to be much more diverse it's going to be much more about gains at an industry or at a company level those tend to be made by small teams by innovators I think that potentially argues for diversity and argues for what the U.S. in particular does best when when things are working, which is letting a thousand flowers bloom.
0: So we have just a, a couple minutes left, and I want to um, ask you just a final couple questions. Um, and 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 I want to digress here for a second. So as you know, we have quite a variety of voices on this on this program from a whole you know a, a our audience knows. Um, and one of the great compliments that I ever get is how do you know enough to to talk to these, to people? And you know, and I think a lot <laughs> of it comes down to curiosity, but I have the benefit of just having to ask the questions. You, on the other hand, have to come up with a thesis and make an assertion. And by the way, in something like the FT, you've got a very, very sophisticated yes. participating audience. Yes. So I'm wondering how you do what you do. I think our audience uh-huh. would benefit from knowing that, first of all. The other thing is you debunk in the book or, you, you know, you sort of point to some of the seminal texts um, of, you know, of, of recent decades, like the world is flat and the end of history and, and things like that. Are there any books right now that you hmm. think are capturing a lot of what we are talking about and giving a, as, as clear eyed a view or at least set of yeah. arguments to think about for what's, what's going on going forward?
1: Um, well, let me answer the latter question first. Yeah, there's two books I would recommend at this moment. One is um, Power and Progress by Darren Ajma and Simon Johnson, who are a couple of professors at MIT. It, they, they did a, um, a thousand year look at technology disruption and how you can make sure that it's a win-win. And it is just fascinating. Boy, it has lessons for anybody that's thinking about AI, anybody that's thinking about this moment politically. Um, Uh, Very well written to a good read. And then I would recommend another book, um, an older book by my friend Barry Lynn, who runs the Open Markets Institute in Washington called The End of the Line. And this book was written, actually, it was funny, it was written the same year that The World is Flat was written. And it's sort of the opposite. It, you know, Barry looked at the Japanese tsunami, he looked at supply chain disasters, and he didn't see The World is Flat, because we're all interconnected. He saw wow, the world is bumpy and it's going to get bumpier unless we think about um, uh, our industrial commons and, and, and how things get put together. Um, so that's a great um, primer, I think, for this moment of, of deglobalization and regionalization. In terms of how I do what I do, I mean, I am someone that relies on um, a lot on inductive reasoning. And I, you know I, I try and use both inductive and deductive, but really getting out in the world putting my finger to the wind, talking to real people, getting into unexpected places. That's always how I've operated. I think it's the advantage that journalism brings. Um, and I now have the advantage that I'm, you know, I'm 50, almost 54. So I have a few things to say, and uh, I try to put them together as well as I can each week in the FT.
0: Well, I want to want to close out by reading to the audience, uh, just a short excerpt from the very end of your of your book, because you say You know, um, the ability of global capitalists to control vastly more cross-border wealth um, and power than ever before in history has led us to a place in which neoliberal visions of globalization are collapsing. Populism and nationalism have been the result. But you go on to say that while paradigm shifts can be scary, they also bring opportunity. And it is the the nature and it is the job of CEOs to be optimistic about where they're going to take their organization into the future. So net net, when when you know when you look at this, and I know you're raising kids and so on and so forth, yeah. you know, do you have? Are you sort of fundamentally
1: positive in this moment, or are you really? I kind am, of, I am, yeah. and I'll tell you why. Because I always look for counter indicators, and boy, being positive is a counter indicator right now. You know, I mean, no matter what's coming out of Davos, you know, folks are nervous. There's so much bad news. There's so we've come through a lot of change, but you know what? I mean, there is tremendous opportunity right now. And I think if we if we just can kind of hold society together, hold our politics together, I really think we can grab it. And um, and so, yeah, I'm going to come out as an optimist.
0: Well, Rana Perukhar's column appears regularly in the Financial Times. You can also see her on CNN. Her latest book is Homecoming. Um Rana, I really want to thank you for taking the time today. Obviously, it's a dynamic moment. You've uh, you've covered a lot of ground here. So thanks very much for a fascinating conversation. Really oh, appreciate it. thank you it. for
1: having me. Thank you, thank you for the listenership.
0: So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at taneoinsights at taneo.com. See you next time.